This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Previously on The Report. They were absolutely convinced that they needed to get these emails in order to damage Hillary Clinton, and they really didn't care whether or not this was really the Russian government or whether they were being duped. Stone was one of the Trump campaign's sources about future WikiLeaks releases. Peter Smith became mildly obsessed by this notion. Guys, I got a weird Twitter DM from WikiLeaks. See below. Leaning on the horn, on the alarm, breaking the glass, everything, saying uh, the Russians are meddling in our elections and this is real and this is serious and we got to pay attention to this. It's July 26th, 2016. Donald Trump insists in an interview that he has no business in Russia. I mean, I have nothing to do with Russia. I don't have any jobs in Russia. I'm all over the world, but we're not involved in Russia. But just two months earlier, in May 2016, a businessman working with the Trump Organization sends an email to Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen. They're putting together a deal to build a Trump skyscraper in Moscow. He wants to arrange a visit to Russia by then-candidate Trump. He writes, I had a chat with Moscow. Assuming the trip does happen, the question is before or after the convention. He's referring to the Republican National Convention, which is set to take place in Cleveland over the summer. Cohen responds, my trip before Cleveland Trump, once he becomes the nominee, after the convention. This is The Report, Episode 4, A Tale of Two Trump Towers. I have no deals in Russia. I have no deals that could happen in Russia because we've stayed away. As the Russians were engaged in operations to hack and dump emails, the Trump campaign and its associates were in communication with WikiLeaks about the distribution of stolen materials. But that's far from the whole story of the Trump campaign's connections to Russia during the 2016 election. As special counsel Robert Mueller began to piece together the rest of that story, his investigation came to focus on two Trump Towers. The first is Trump Tower Moscow. Beginning all the way back in 2013 and through the spring of 2016, the Trump Organization is pursuing a project to build a skyscraper in Russia. For a long time, the plans for Trump Tower Moscow have gone nowhere. But when Donald Trump announces he's running for president, things start to get interesting. 
It remains to be seen if the Trump brand still carries the same cachet. Donald Trump's name has been slapped on everything from his television show The Apprentice to mattresses. Soon those signature buildings began popping up all over the Big Apple and later across the country. The real estate tycoon is betting the value of his brand name will help him continue to strike lucrative deals. The president's former fixer pleads guilty on a charge of lying to Congress about a plan for a Trump Tower in Moscow. The president yesterday denying he did any deal in Russia, but also saying there'd be nothing wrong with pursuing overseas business as a candidate for president if he had. We have new Twitter reaction from the president just this morning where he describes his behavior during the campaign as very legal and very cool. And then there's the Trump Tower in New York. That's the site of a now infamous meeting that took place on June 9th, 2016. That day, Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort meet with alleged representatives of the Russian government who are offering dirt on the Clinton campaign. During the campaign and into his presidency, Donald Trump and his associates have repeatedly denied having any business connections with Russians. Donald Trump has personally denied it. I know nothing about Russia. I don't deal there. I have no businesses. I have no loans from Russia. It isn't just Donald Trump who's denying business connections with Russia. During the campaign, his campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, denies it as well. Are there any ties between Mr. Trump, you or your campaign, and Putin and his regime? No, there are not. It's absurd. Uh, and, you know, there's no base to it. Not all of the denials are entirely convincing. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. If that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. Trump's family has denied it. Here's his son, Eric Trump a vice president of the Trump Organization. We have no dealings in Russia. We have no projects in Russia. We have nothing to do with Russia. According to the Mueller report, that wasn't true. In fact, Donald Trump had been actively pursuing at least one significant business deal in Russia through the campaign period. Going back years, Trump had wanted a building in Russia. And from 2013 to 2016, he was attempting to build Trump Tower, Moscow. Here's Benjamin Wittes, who, as always, is quoting or paraphrasing the Mueller report itself. Between at least 2013 and 2016, the Trump Organization explored a similar licensing deal in Russia involving the construction of a Trump-branded property in Moscow. The project, commonly referred to as a Trump Tower, Moscow, anticipated a combination of commercial, hotel, and residential properties all within the same building. Between 2013 and 2016, several employees of the Trump Organization, including then-president of the organization, Donald J. Trump, pursued a Moscow deal with several Russian counterparts. From the fall of 2015 until the middle of 2016, Michael Cohen spearheaded the Trump Organization's pursuit of a Trump Tower Moscow project, including by reporting on the project's status to candidate Trump and other executives in the Trump Organization. There were two main efforts at building Trump Tower Moscow. The first involved the so-called Crocus Group. In order to build in Moscow, Trump needed a local partner. 
the Crocus Group is a real estate development company controlled by a Russian oligarch named Eris Agalarov. Trump and Agalarov know each other because they put on the Miss Universe pageant in Moscow together in 2013. At the end of that 2013 pageant, the pair begins discussing a possible Trump Tower deal. Jason Leopold and Anthony Cormier of BuzzFeed News broke some of the earliest reporting on the Trump Tower Moscow project. Here's Leopold. So Anthony and I had started to hear in 2017 that this Trump Tower Moscow project, which we didn't know about at the time, and, and frankly, I, didn't think, I don't think anyone really knew about it at the time, had been a very important part of uh, the investigation. But we chased that because it was, one, it was fascinating because of the individuals that were involved with it. It was, it was Felix Sater, uh, it was Michael Cohen, and, uh, and, and we had heard that, you know, that during the, the course of the, of, of the campaign that you know, Trump was also uh, you know, had a hand in that. The negotiations start in December 2013. Trump and Agalarov both send their sons to negotiate. Donald Trump Jr. for the Trump Organization, and Emin Agalarov for the Crocus Group. Emin is assisted by two men, whose names will become important later, Ike Cavaladze and Rob Goldstone. In January and February 2014, the two sides negotiate what's called a letter of intent for the project. From January 2014 through November 2014, the Trump Organization and Crocus Group discussed development plans for the Moscow project. Sometime before January 24, 2014, the Crocus Group sent the Trump Organization a proposal for an 800-unit, 194-meter building to be constructed at an Agalarov-owned site in Moscow called Crocus City. In February 2014, Ivanka Trump met with Eamon Agalarov and toured the Crocus City site during a visit to Moscow. From March 2014 through July 2014, the groups discussed design standards and other architectural elements. But in September 2014, the project starts to fizzle. The communications between the two sides grow fewer and further between, and then stop entirely in November. It never goes past the planning stage. And Donald Trump has other things on his mind anyway. On June 16, 2015, he declares his candidacy for president. I am officially running for president of the United States, and we are going to make our country great again. But then, in late summer 2015, Trump gets another shot at finally building a Trump Tower in Moscow. In late summer 2015, the Trump Organization received a new inquiry about pursuing a Trump Tower project in Moscow. In approximately September 2015, Felix Sater, a New York-based real estate advisor, contacted Michael Cohen, then executive vice president of the Trump Organization and special counsel to Donald J. Trump. Here's Anthony Cormier. So I think that Felix Sater, uh, he, we had known of him, as had many people who had been following the, the Trump-Russia investigation. 
we'd known him only as he'd been described in the press previously as, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, a known Russian gangster and convicted felon. Uh, he continued to pop up in, in very strange ways in Trump's orbit. Sater had previously worked with the Trump Organization and advised it on a number of domestic and international projects. Sater had explored the possibility of a Trump Tower project in Moscow while working with the Trump Organization and therefore knew of the organization's general interest in completing a deal there. Sater contacted Cohen on behalf of IC Expert Investment Company, a Russian real estate development corporation owned by Andrei Rozov. In approximately September 2015, Cohen obtained approval to negotiate with IC Expert from candidate Trump. Cohen provided updates directly to Trump about the project throughout 2015 and into 2016. Cohen also discussed the Trump-Moscow project with Ivanka Trump as to design elements and Donald Trump Jr. during the fall of 2015. When Michael Cohen testifies before the House Oversight Committee in February of 2019, Congressman Stephen Lynch asks him about this project. I want to ask you, uh, in your filing with the special counsel Mueller's office, uh, the prosecutors wrote, and I quote, Mr. Cohen discussed the status of pro and progress of the Moscow project with individual one on more than the three occasions Mr. Cohen claimed to the committee. And he briefed family members of individual one with the company about the project. Uh, I know this is redundant, but Mr. Cohen, uh, who are we referring to here when we refer to individual one? Donald J. Trump. Uh, and who were the family members that you briefed on the Trump Tower Moscow project? Don Trump Jr. and Ivanka Trump. Do you recall how many of these briefings there might have been? It's approximately 10 okay. in total. All right. Between approximately October 13, 2015 and November 2, 2015, the Trump Organization and IC Expert completed a letter of intent for a Trump Moscow project. The LOI, signed by Trump for the Trump Organization, and Rozoff on behalf of IC Expert was, quote, intended to facilitate further discussions, unquote, in order to, quote, attempt to enter into a mutually acceptable agreement, unquote, related to the Trump-branded project in Moscow. The Trump Organization stood to earn substantial sums over the lifetime of the project without assuming significant liabilities or financial commitments. It didn't take long for those involved in the deal to tie the Trump Tower Moscow project to Trump's political fortunes in the United States. On November 3, 2015, the day after the Trump Organization transmitted the LOI, Sater emailed Cohen suggesting that the Trump Moscow project could be used to increase candidate Trump's chances at being elected, writing, Buddy, our boy can become president of the USA and we can engineer it. I will get all of Putin's team to buy in on this. I will manage the process. You and I will get Donald and Vladimir on a stage together very shortly. That the game changer, unquote. Later that day, Sater follows up again, writing, 
Donald doesn't stare down. He negotiates and understands the economic issues. And Putin only want to deal with a pragmatic leader and a successful businessman as a good candidate for someone who knows how to negotiate. America's most difficult adversary agreeing that Donald is a good guy to negotiate. We can own this election. Michael, my next steps are very sensitive with Putin's very, very close people. We can pull this off. Michael, let's go. Two boys from Brooklyn getting a USA president elected. This is good, really good. Here's Anthony Cormier again. You could sort of fast forward to the mid-2000s where he's still working for the Trump organization and his sort of old friend, uh, Michael Cohen. They, you know, these, these two guys are, are good friends. They're, they're in the mid-2000s. They, they're working deals. Felix has to take a, take a step back. And when he does, Michael assents. Uh, Michael Cohen becomes the go-to guy, the sort of fixer character that we all know him to be now. And so... When the president begins his improbable run to the White House, Felix gets a brilliant idea and says, let's do it. Essentially, Russians didn't place a whole lot of cachet in Trump. He didn't, he didn't carry a whole lot of weight overseas. They weren't willing to pay a premium for, for a Trump name on their building. But as he began to say nice things about Russia, began to flatter President Putin, Felix saw that as an opportunity to, uh, to take advantage. And so... Felix returns to his old buddy, Michael Cohen, and says, let's get this tower built. They begin with the letter of intent. According to Cohen, he doesn't really consider the benefits of the deal to Trump's political candidacy at the time. Neither Trump nor anyone in the campaign talks about the political implications of Trump Tower Moscow. In fact, Trump's focus is on a contrary proposition, how his candidacy could help his business. Mr. Trump would often say this campaign was going to be the greatest infomercial in political history. Because of the size of the project, Cohen and Sater believe they need buy-in from the Russian government. Here's journalist Julia Yaffe on what it takes to work with the Russian government on luxury real estate deals. So the first thing is when you do real estate is one of the most corrupt um, politically connected industries. You need to have political approval to build your stuff, which means you need to like pay off the right people and politics, et cetera. So you need kind of a local Sherpa to help you do that. You need a local partner, a good local partner who knows the ropes, who can get you all the permits. And of course, the more permits you have, the more opportunities for corruption there are. It's a very Byzantine, very corrupt, politically treacherous industry and you really got to have a good local partner to Sherpa you through it. The other problem that they ran into was the way Trump builds buildings is not the way Russians build buildings. These license, you know, Trump comes in there, he says, I want to build a Trump Tower. You're going to build the Trump Tower. You're going to pay for everything. Then you're going to buy my name to put on the tower for however million dollars and we'll have like a leasing, you're, you're going to lease my brand. Well, the Russians were like, sorry, who's Trump? Nobody watches The Apprentice in Russia. Nobody knows who Donald Trump is. He's a purely American brand. Uh, the second Donald Trump declares that he wants to run for president, suddenly the Russians are interested. 
in building this thing. Suddenly it's a brand they're interested in and you know, and it coincides with the Russian desire to interfere in the election. So this project that had been dead for years is suddenly revived just after he declares that he's going to run for president. In early negotiations with the Trump organization, Sater had alluded to the need for government approval and his attempts to set up meetings with Russian officials. On October 12, 2015, for example, Sater wrote to Cohen that, quote, all we need is Putin on board and we are golden, unquote, and that, quote, a meeting with Putin and top deputy is tentatively set for the 14th of October, unquote. About a month after the letter of intent was signed, in November 2015, someone named Dmitry Klokov reaches out to Ivanka Trump through his wife to offer his assistance to the Trump campaign. Klokov is an executive at a Russian electricity company, and he previously worked for Russia's energy minister. Ivanka Trump forwards this message to Michael Cohen. Klokov and Cohen exchange phone calls and emails. Klokov suggests that Cohen and Trump should visit Russia, and he claims to be in a position to introduce them to high-level Russian officials. Klokov suggests Trump make an informal visit to Russia, but Cohen pushes back. Cohen insists that any meetings in Russia involving him and Trump, including a possible meeting between then-candidate Trump and Putin, need to be related to the building development and need to be part of an official visit where the Trump Organization receives a formal invitation. Eventually, Cohen decides not to pursue Klokov's offer of help because Felix Sater says he has his own connections to the Russian government. The problem is that Sater isn't coming through on those promises. By late December 2015, Cohen was contemplating that Sater had not been able to use those connections to set up the promised meeting with Russian government officials. Cohen told Sater that he was, quote, setting up the meeting myself, unquote. On January 11, 2016, Cohen emailed the office of Dmitry Peskov, the Russian government's press secretary, indicating that he desired contact with Sergei Ivanov, Putin's chief of staff. Cohen erroneously used the wrong email address, so the email apparently did not go through. On January 14, 2016, Cohen emails the correct address. He writes to Peskov, Quote, Dear Mr. Peskov, over the past few months, I have been working with a company based in Russia regarding the development of a Trump Tower Moscow project in Moscow City. Without getting into lengthy specifics, the communication between our two sides has stalled. As this project is too important, I am hereby requesting your assistance. I respectfully request someone, preferably you, contact me so that I might discuss the specifics as well as arranging meetings with appropriate individuals. I thank you in advance for your assistance and look forward to hearing from you soon, unquote. Here's Anthony Cormier again. Sometime in January, late January, Michael Cohen, after the deal, after he's sort of blown up at, at, at Felix and the deal looks like it's on the rocks, Michael Cohen takes this unusual gambit and he writes a letter, an, an email, to a sort of general press inquiry email account controlled by uh, the Kremlin, wherein he asks Mr. Peskov for a meeting. He essentially says, I need your help. I, re I respectfully request someone, preferably you, contact. Julia Yaffe says the exchange is puzzling. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I always thought it was just not, that's just not, A, who you would go to if you wanted to build something. I don't know that you would go to Piskulf. Like, that's not, it would be like going to Sarah Sanders to see if you could rent out like a huge block of rooms in the Trump International Hotel. It's like, I, I'm sure eventually, like somebody might respond to you. But it's maybe not the most straightforward thing. And also the fact that he didn't have his personal email or his every journalist I have in my phone right now, I can show you. I have four cell phone numbers for Dmitry Peskov. I have his email that like any, any journalist, anybody, if you feel like sadder who constantly brags about all these connections he has, couldn't provide him with a normal email to the only accessible member of the Kremlin, their right to try to find a powerful political sponsor for this. It's just the way they went about doing it is was a head scratcher for me. Before he began cooperating, Michael Cohen told Congress and the special counsel's office that he never received a response to that email and that he terminated any work on the Trump Tower Moscow project as of January 2016. That, it turns out, was a lie. Here's Cohen again, appearing before the House Oversight Committee in February 2019. The last time I appeared before Congress, I came to protect Mr. Trump. Today, I am here to tell the truth about Mr. Trump. I lied to Congress when Mr. Trump stopped negotiating the Moscow Tower project in Russia. I stated that we stopped negotiating in January of 2016. That was false. Our negotiations continued for months later during the campaign. In reality, Cohen had received a response in his outreach to Peskov. On January 20, 2016, Cohen received an email from Elena Polyakova, Peskov's personal assistant. Shortly after receiving Polyakova's email, Cohen called and spoke to her for 20 minutes. Cohen described to Polyakova his position at the Trump Organization and outlined the proposed Trump Moscow project. Cohen requested assistance in moving the project forward, both in securing land to build the project and with financing. According to Cohen, Polyakova asked detailed questions and took notes, stating that she would need to follow up with others in Russia. Cohen could not recall any direct follow-up from Polyakova or from any other representative of the Russian government. However, the day after Cohen's call with Polyakova, Sater texted Cohen, asking him to, quote, call me when you have a few minutes to chat. It's about Putin. They called today, unquote. At the end of January 2016, Sater arranges for a Russian businessman to invite Cohen to Moscow, purportedly in connection with one of Russia's largest banks. The invitation is for Cohen to come for a work visit, to discuss the Trump Tower project, and to, quote, coordinate a follow-up visit to Moscow by Mr. Donald Trump, end quote. The late January communication was neither the first nor the last time that Cohen contemplated visiting Russia in pursuit of the Trump Moscow project. Beginning in late 2015, Sater repeatedly tried to arrange for Cohen and candidate Trump as representatives of the Trump Organization to travel to Russia to meet with Russian government officials and possible financing partners. In December 2015, 
Sater sent Cohen a number of emails about logistics for traveling to Russia for meetings. In the spring of 2016, Sater and Cohen are still discussing plans for Cohen and Trump to visit Russia. On April 20th, 2016, Sater wrote Cohen, quote, the people wanted to know when you are coming, unquote. On May 4th, 2016, Sater followed up, quote, I had a chat with Moscow. Assuming the trip does happen, the question is before or after the convention. Obviously, the pre-meeting trip, you only, can happen anytime you want. But the two big guys were the question. Cohen responded, quote, my trip before Cleveland, Trump once he becomes the nominee after the convention. The following day, Sater suggests that Cohen's travel to Russia will be part of the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, an annual event attended by prominent Russian politicians and businessmen. Sater told the office that he was informed by a business associate that Peskov wanted to invite Cohen to the forum. On May 5th, 2016, Sater wrote to Cohen, quote, Peskov would like to invite you as his guest to the St. Petersburg Forum. He wants to meet with you and possibly introduce you to either Putin or Medvedev. This is perfect. The entire business class of Russia will be there as well. He said anything you want to discuss, including dates and subjects, are on the table to discuss, unquote. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quote. On June 9, 2016, Sater sends Cohen a note about the forum and adds, Putin is there on the 17th. Very strong chance you will meet him as well. But the actual invitation Sater produces doesn't indicate that Peskov or any other Russian official is actually involved in inviting Cohen. Suddenly, Cohen is worried that maybe Sater is making this all up. Maybe there aren't any Russian officials who actually want to meet with him. So on June 14th, he meets Sater in the lobby of the Trump Tower in New York and says he isn't going on the trip. Cohen tells the special counsel's office that he discussed the possibility of Trump traveling to Russia in the period in which the Trump Tower Moscow project was in talks, including in late 2015 and again in the spring of 2016. According to Cohen, Trump indicated a willingness to travel if it would assist the project significantly. On one occasion, Trump told Cohen to speak with then-campaign manager Corey Lewandowski to coordinate the candidate's schedule. 
Cohen recalled that he spoke with Lewandowski, who suggested that they speak again when Cohen had actual dates to evaluate. Here's Cohen's house testimony in an exchange with Congressman Mark DeSaulnier. In your guilty plea with the special counsel, you quote, say, uh, it, it quotes, Cohen asked individual one, is that President Trump? Yes. Okay. About the possibility of, of President Trump traveling to Russia in connection with the Moscow project and asked a senior campaign official about potential businesses travel, business travel to Russia. Uh, what, when did this conversation happen, do you recall? Early on in the campaign. And who was the campaign official? Corey Lewandowski. What, what did you discuss in this meeting? Possibility of which dates that Mr. Trump would have availability if, in fact, that we were going to go over to Russia to take a look at the project. Unfortunately, it never came to fruition because we were never successful. But when I first received the information request to go to Russia, what I decided to do is I spoke to Mr. Trump about it. He told me to speak to Corey and see what dates might be available. In addition to the discussions about possible travel related to the Trump Tower Moscow deal, Trump was also invited to attend the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. Trump declines that invitation, however, saying he was honored to be asked to participate, but his campaign schedule was too busy to accommodate the trip. Anthony Cormier says it's notable that there are so many attempts by the Russians to get Cohen and Trump to travel to Moscow. I think you can look at it and say there is a very concerted effort, for whatever reasons, to get Trump, get his surrogates overseas and in a room with top Russian officials. It's a, I, I think it's a disputable at this point. It is very clear that very influential, very powerful Russian individuals, many, whom, many of whom are very close to the Kremlin itself, were, were beyond eager. They were sort of salivating at the opportunity to have both a Trump surrogate and Trump himself visit them in person. That these, these were not normal steps, that they were, it feels like they pulled out all of the stops, used Seder and the Trump organization's thirst for a, a deal to get, to get within proximity of these individuals, particularly as he solidified himself as a candidate. You know, he, there's one thing when he's leading the polls early on, but as they're moving towards, as he essentially wraps it up on paper, they begin to push hard. Uh, you, that's when you begin to see these letters. You begin to see these sort of obscure characters reach out. Uh, there's a reason that Russia wanted them to come over. We don't know what that is. So why does Cohen lie to Congress and the special counsel's office about the timeline of the Trump Tower Moscow negotiations? After all, these are the lies that eventually send Cohen to jail. Why not just admit that the Trump Organization has been pursuing a deal in Moscow through the spring of 2016? According to Michael Cohen, he lied because that's what Trump wanted him to do. Mr. Trump did not directly tell me to lie to Congress. That's not how he operates. In conversations we had during the campaign, at the same time I was actively negotiating in Russia for him, he would look me in the eye and tell me there's no Russian business and then go on to lie to the American people by saying the same thing. In his way, 
he was telling me to lie. You need to know that Mr. Trump's personal lawyers reviewed and edited my statement to Congress about the timing of the Moscow Tower negotiations before I gave it. So to be clear, Mr. Trump knew of and directed the Trump-Moscow negotiations throughout the campaign and lied about it. He lied about it because he never expected to win. He also lied about it because he stood to make hundreds of millions of dollars on the Moscow real estate project. And so I lied about it too. Why does the timeline about the Trump Tower Moscow negotiations matter so much? Here's Jason Leopold again. You know, I recall very vividly, actually, the point in time when, you know, our sources told us that, you know, that it was a lie that it that it ended in January 2016, these negotiations, which is what Michael Cohen had testified to when, in fact, it, you know, it went on uh, right up before the Republican National Convention. We couldn't figure out at the time, like, why, why January 2016? Why was that date, you know, so significant? Uh, obviously, right before the the Iowa caucuses. That's the story of Trump Tower Moscow. But what about Trump Tower New York? The original Trump Tower Moscow deal with the Crocus Group may have fizzled back in November 2014. But some of that same cast of characters, Eris Agalarov, his son Emin, Rob Goldstone, and Ike Kavaladze, would emerge a year and a half later, in June 2016. This time, the building in question isn't a proposal, but an actual glass and metal skyscraper more than 4,000 miles away from Moscow, the Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue in New York City. On June 9, 2016, senior representatives of the Trump campaign met in Trump Tower with a Russian attorney expecting to receive derogatory information about Hillary Clinton from the Russian government. That meeting takes place on June 9th. But here's what Donald Trump Jr. told CNN's Jake Tapper a month later when asked about WikiLeaks' release of hacked emails. This is on June 24th, a few weeks after Don Jr.'s meeting with the Russians. So um, I don't know if you were hearing earlier, but uh, Robbie Mook, the campaign manager for Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, I asked him about the DNC leak. He seemed to be suggesting uh, that this is part of a plot to help Donald Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton. Your response? Well, it just goes to show you their exact moral compass. I mean, they'll say anything to be able to win this. I mean, this is time and time again, lie after lie. It's disgusting. It's so phony. I mean, I can't think of bigger lies. Don Jr. publicly says that the suggestion that the DNC leaks were part of a plot to harm Clinton and help his father are lies and phony and disgusting. But just a month earlier, he'd received an email offering to set up a meeting to pass on incriminating information the Russian government had about Clinton to the Trump campaign as, quote, part of Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump. And Don Jr. doesn't say the offer is disgusting. Instead, he replies, if it's what you say it is, I love it. 
It's a huge day in Washington regarding the Russia investigation. Tonight, President Trump's eldest son finds himself at the heart of the matter. It was part of a Russian government effort to help his father's election campaign. In a four-day flurry of emails, Donald Trump Jr. and Goldstone set up a meeting at Trump Tower in New York. That would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia. Don Jr. has fervently denied any connection or collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. Obviously highly sensitive information, but as part of Russia and its government support of Mr. Trump. Trump's son, Donald Trump Jr., was expecting the Russians to supply dirt on Hillary Clinton. If it's what you say, I love it. And if it's what you say, I love it. If it's what you say, I love it. If it's what you say, I love it. But let's step back a minute. How is it that Rob Goldstone comes to send that email to Donald Trump Jr.? Lawfare Managing Editor Quinta Jurassic explains. Rob Goldstone is a publicist for Iman Agalarov, who is a pop star and the son of an Azerbaijani Russian oligarch who knows Trump. Over the years, Goldstone has been kind of a go-between between the Trumps and the Agalarovs. And on June 3rd, 2016, Iman calls Goldstone. According to the Mueller report, during that phone call, Eamon talks about a Russian political connection. He references a Russian prosecutor, and Eamon refers to some kind of information about Hillary Clinton that might interest the Trumps. After he gets this call with Eamon, Goldstone then turns around and emails Trump Jr., sort of lays it all out for him, says Eamon Aguilarov asked him to reach out, that Aguilarov's father had met with the, quote, crown prosecutor of Russia, and that this Russian official offered documents and information that would implicate Clinton and help Trump. Goldstone says this is all high level and sensitive, but quote, part of Russia and its government's support for Trump, end quote. So you don't even need to do any reading between the lines here. Goldstone is being pretty explicit that there's dirt about Clinton, it's from Russia, and the Russian government is trying to help Trump. In response, John Jr. sends what has become an infamous email, saying, thank you, I'm traveling, but I'll talk to Eamon. And what he writes is, quote, if it's what you say it is, I love it, especially later in the summer. After receiving this response from Don Jr., Goldstone works to set up a call for him with Emin. Don Jr. and Emin have multiple brief calls on June 6th and 7th. Once it's known that Trump Jr. wants to have this meeting, they start setting everything up behind the scenes. They get this guy, Ike Kavaladze, who had worked on the Trump Tower Moscow deal with the Crocus Group, to agree to translate. And the person they're looking for the Trumps to meet with is this woman, Natalia Veselinskaya. The Russian attorney who's supposed to deliver this dirt is a woman named Natalia Veselinskaya. She had been a prosecutor for the Russian government until 2001, and she continues to have close ties to the Kremlin. She performs legal work for Russian business interests and lobbies against a U.S. law called the Magnitsky Act, which are sanctions that Congress has imposed on wealthy Russians for human rights abuses. Planning for the meeting on the offer of Russian dirt is underway. But who in the Trump campaign is aware of what's going on and when? On June 7th, Goldstone emails Trump Jr., who had talked to Emin earlier that day and the day before, and Goldstone says, quote, Emin asked that I schedule a meeting with you and the Russian government attorney who's flying over from Moscow. 
Trump Jr. then says that Manafort and Kushner are going to be there as well. Goldstone is kind of surprised to hear this, that other people are going to be there too. According to Rick Gates, the deputy campaign chairman, in the days before the June 9 meeting, Don Jr. tells a meeting of senior campaign staff and Trump family members that he has a lead on negative information about the Clinton Foundation. Gates recalled that the meeting was attended by Trump Jr., Eric Trump, Paul Manafort, Hope Hicks, and joining late Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. According to Gates, Manafort warned the group that the meeting likely would not yield vital information and they should be careful. Hicks denied any knowledge of the June 9th meeting before 2017, and Kushner did not recall if the planned June 9th meeting came up at all earlier that week. And Michael Cohen says he believes Trump Jr. may have separately told his father about the meeting in advance. I remember being in a room with Mr. Trump probably in early June of 2016 when something peculiar happened. Don Trump Jr. came into the room and walked behind his father's desk, which in and of itself was unusual. People didn't just walk behind Mr. Trump's desk to talk to him. And I recall Don Jr. leaning over to his father and speaking in a low voice, which I could clearly hear, and saying, the meeting is all set. And I remember Mr. Trump saying, okay, good, let me know. In an interview with the Senate Judiciary Committee, Trump Jr. stated that he did not inform his father about the emails or the upcoming meeting. Similarly, neither Manafort nor Kushner recalled anyone informing candidate Trump of the meeting, including Trump Jr. President Trump has stated to this office in written answers to questions that he has, quote, no recollection of learning at the time, unquote, that his son, Manafort or Kushner, quote, was considering participating in a meeting in June 2016 concerning potentially negative information about Hillary Clinton, unquote. The day of the meeting arrives. On June 9th, the group gathers in Trump Tower, New York. Trump Jr., Manafort, and Kushner are there. And so are Vetselnitskaya, Goldstone, and Kavalatse. They also bring along Renat Akhmetshin, who's a former Soviet military officer turned Washington lobbyist, and with him is an additional Russian interpreter. The meeting lasts about 20 minutes, and it doesn't go as planned for either side. Here's Julia Yaffe discussing Donald Trump Jr. He is told that the Russian government has some dirt on Hillary Clinton, and it's sending this emissary, Natalia Vyselnitskaya, to bring it to him, and he says, if it's, you say, if it's what you say, I love it. Like, he's there for dirt, and I think that's kind of where the meeting goes off the rails, where the dirt that Vysilnitska is bringing is kind of peripheral dirt. The dirt that the Russians bring isn't Hillary Clinton's hacked emails. Instead, it's some purported information about a critic of the Kremlin named Bill Browder, and the Ziff brothers, who are Americans with business in Russia. 
Veselnitskaya stated that the Ziff brothers had broken Russian laws and had donated their profits to the DNC or the Clinton campaign. According to Akhmetshin, Trump Jr. asked follow-up questions about how the alleged payments could be tied specifically to the Clinton campaign, but Veselnitskaya indicated that she could not trace the money once it entered the United States. Kavaladze similarly recalled that Trump Jr. asked what they have on Clinton, and Kushner became aggravated and asked, quote, what are we doing here, unquote. She did bring him what she thought was dirt, right? It was, it was kind of a bait and switch. She did bring him what the Russian government thought would be dirt, which is that she, the Clintons had accepted money at some point from these finance, uh, financier brothers. This would be effective kind of compromise on Hillary Clinton. And then she wanted to talk about her main issue all these years, which is her work, often on behalf of the Russian government, to repeal the Magnitsky Act. And, but framing it as repealing the adoptions ban, which was a totally strange and incongruous ban put in place by the Kremlin to punish its own orphans for, Russia, for America punishing Russia for its corruption. Very strange. Um, but the media, you know, she starts talking about that. It's very clear that the Trump people in the room don't really understand what she's talking about, are definitely not interested. They think the dirt she brought them is not really good. Jurassic explains the connection between the Magnitsky Act and adoptions. Basically, the short version is that the Magnitsky Act is a set of sanctions imposed by the U.S. government. In retaliation, Russia banned U.S. adoptions of Russian children. So when Veselnitska says that this is about repealing this adoptions ban, that is more or less a code for the Magnitsky Act being repealed. The Trump team may be annoyed to find themselves discussing the Magnitsky Act, but to the Russian participants, the subject is a very important one. The Kremlin is almost singularly obsessed with the Magnitsky Act because it goes to the very raison d'etre for many of the elites and the risks they deal with to work in the government and in the security structures, which is to have access to money flows and to steal said money flows. Uh, corruption, I think Americans don't understand the extent of the corruption in Russia and in the Russian government, and that people go into the government not for ideological reasons, but for financial reasons, and that you might be paid $2,000 a year, but you might have several multi-million dollar apartments and luxury cars and a bank account in Switzerland, et cetera, and that's just because you're stealing stuff. When it becomes harder to move that money out, to buy real estate abroad, to open these bank accounts abroad, and when it becomes, when, you're, when there's a threat that you might suddenly end up on this list with no, with no recourse to appeal and might never be able to see your assets again in Switzerland or in London or in New York or your kids who live in uh, and your wife who lives in London or New York or Geneva. The Magnitsky Act sanctions effectively hinders those individuals from accessing their money abroad. I think what Bill Browder did in Pushing the Magnitsky Act, what he got really right is it just really goes at the heart of how the entire system operates. I think what a lot of the coverage of the Mueller investigation got wrong is 
or didn't it didn't didn't paint a full enough picture of Russia, which is uh, you know imagining Russia to be this perfect villain, this kind of neo-Soviet power that is just about ideology and spy games. When in fact, it is some of that, but it's also often to a larger extent about money and corruption and stealing as much as possible, as quickly as possible, and spiriting it out of the country as quickly as possible. Jared Kushner has been listening to the Russians go on about the Magnitsky Act. And upon realizing they don't have any actual dirt, he decides he's had enough. At some point in the meeting, Kushner sent an iMessage to Manafort saying, quote, waste of time, unquote, followed immediately by two separate emails to assistants at Kushner companies with requests that they call him to give him an excuse to leave. But I think it was very clear what was happening there, right? Even if it wasn't successful in the sense of it wasn't successful for Vesilnitska because she didn't get a commitment out of them to repeal the Magnitsky Act and they didn't take the dirt. And it wasn't successful for Trump Jr. and the Trump campaign because the, she, they didn't get good dirt on Hillary, which is what they wanted. But it was deeply telling in that the Russian government was clearly trying to help the Trump campaign. And the Trump campaign was like, if it's what you say, I love it. If it were a drug dealer, it's like they, she brought the wrong drug, you know, and they don't want to buy it. You know, it's what I've been saying till I'm blue in the face with this is that the Russians are bad. They're very bad actors, but their badness, their evil is often, far too often tempered with incompetence and just an ignorance about how our system works, even though they've gotten a lot better in part because of their spying operations and their hacking operations, in part because all of this stuff is now out there and you don't need a physical you know, copy of the New York Times to figure this stuff out any- anymore. Like all this data is out there, all the polls, et cetera. Uh, but they still don't quite understand our political system enough to understand that maybe this wasn't the best dirt to bring to the trumpet, like that this might just not be interesting to them. Uh, and for them, the Magnitsky Act is such a thorn in their sides. They want so badly to have it repealed that they just needed to get in the. Their priority was, sure, 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 we'll help you with the election, but we also, like, we'll especially help you with the election if you commit to undoing this law that really, really hurts us. They also had, you know, their own agenda. If the Trump campaign is disappointed about the lack of dirt on Clinton, the Russians are also unhappy with the outcome. Kavalatse told Eris Agalarov that the meeting about the Magnitsky Act had been a waste of time because they were, quote, preaching to the wrong crowd. Then, on July 8, 2017, the New York Times first reports the existence of a meeting at Trump Tower with, quote, a lawyer with connections to the Kremlin. Breaking news report now, Maggie Haberman reporting in the New York Times, and it is really something. Here's the lead paragraph, quote, before arranging a meeting with a Kremlin-connected Russian lawyer he believed would offer him compromising information about Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump Jr. was informed in an email that the material was part of a Russian government effort to aid his father's candidacy. When the meeting becomes public, Goldstone is furious. Goldstone is really angry when this all comes out. He emails Emin to say, quote, now the FBI is investigating, and I hope this favor was worth it for your dad. And even Emin is throwing his dad under the bus, basically saying, you know, my dad never listens to me. So as soon as this becomes public, everyone is quickly trying to act as though they had absolutely nothing to do with this meeting. 
All the participants in the June 9th meeting agree to speak to the special counsel's office, except for Veselnitskaya and Donald Trump Jr. In media interviews, Veselnitskaya has claimed to have no connection to the Russian government. She says this was simply a private meeting to discuss Congress when Don Jr., who happened to be a friend of a friend. Donald Trump Jr. admits that the purpose of the meeting was to get dirt on Clinton, but he defends taking it in a July 2017 interview with Fox News. This email comes in. What are you thinking? Honestly, my takeaway when all of this was going on is that someone has information on our opponent. You know, things are going a million miles an hour. You know what it's like to be on a campaign. We just won Indiana, but we're talking about a contested convention. Things are going a million miles an hour again. And, hey, wait a minute. I've heard about all these things, but maybe this is something. I should hear him out. Okay. When you read the parts about the Russian government or Russia supporting your father, did that put off any sirens in your head? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, I think this was, again, just basic information that was going to be possibly there. I didn't know these guys well enough to understand that if this talent manager from Miss Universe you know, had this kind of thing. So I wanted to hear him out and play it out and see what happens. But, you know, people are trying to reach out to you all the time with this. So where does this leave us? The Russians engineer a sophisticated social media trolling operation. They hack Democratic-affiliated computers and leak emails to harm Clinton and help Trump directly and through WikiLeaks. The Trump campaign is in contact with WikiLeaks through intermediaries like Roger Stone and Donald Trump Jr. directly. The Trump Organization is negotiating the Trump Tower Moscow project into the spring of 2016, even as the candidate and campaign are publicly denying business in or contacts with Russia. And senior campaign staff, including Trump's own family members, meet with Russians offering dirt on Clinton. But there's still more to the story of the Trump campaign's connections to Russia during the 2016 election. Campaign chairman Paul Manafort regularly shares internal polling data with a man tied to Russian intelligence. Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort stood to make millions and millions of dollars working for a pro-Russian president in Ukraine. As a group, the charges are so serious, the legal term is conspiracy against the United States. Lawmakers are getting closer to formalizing plans for Trump associates to testify. And at the top of the list are Paul Manafort and Roger Stone. And we're now getting a statement from the special counsel's office detailing exactly what the charges are against him for the first time. Thank you for listening to part four of The Report. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and the Democracy Fund, and by listeners like you. To support this project, please go to lawfareblog.com. The Report is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. Ian Enright is the executive producer. From the Lawfare team, the project is led by executive editor Susan Hennessy. Editor-in-chief is Benjamin Wittes. Managing editor Quinta Jurassic conducted the interviews. Associate editor Michaela Fogel did the recordings and script assistance. With additional recordings by Vishnu Kanan and assistance from Eugenia Lostri and Jacob Schultz. Special thanks to Julia Yaffe, Anthony Cormier, Jason Leopold, Quinta Jurassic and you, the listening audience. 
To support this show, please share this podcast wherever you can. And while you're at it, please subscribe and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Our website, lawfareblog.com, is where you can learn more about Lawfare, read our work, subscribe to our newsletter, and support our mission. Until next time. You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us.